the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, Professor of Economics. With me, in situ outdoors here, is Jeff Allworth, author of The Beer Bible. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. We are uh, we're live on location. We are. We're recording live on location. <laughs> we are, we are, we are. We're out uh, having some fresh hop ales. Uh, last year we did this. We came down here to Loyal Legion in Southeast Portland. Yep. Where they always have a lot of fresh hop beers. It's really one of my favorite places to come this season. It's an amazing place to come because they have such a great selection. They've got tons of taps of all kinds of beer. And then yeah, what did we hear? Fourteen. Fourteen fresh hop beers currently on tap. Uh, of uh, uh, maybe fourteen different breweries, but certainly close. I think it yeah. might be fourteen different breweries. So. Uh, it's a great place if you're interested in ch- checking out a bunch of different breweries, a bunch of different beers, and a bunch of different beer styles because... Man, it's all lagers all the time. <laughs> there's so many lagers now that we're doing in fresh hops, which used to be a real outlier and it used to usually be terrible. Yeah. But they figured it out like everything else. Well, and they're really figuring out a balance. Uh, at one time, the lager approach was to have really delicate use of fresh hops so it could be nice but it was never very intense um but i am drinking a uh let me look at here what i have here the uh threshold fresh hop piwo pilsner uh threshold is owned half half of the ownership is polish so this is his polish uh yark's take on a polish pilsner and uh i don't know what hop it doesn't say what hop it is but it's it's pretty darn zingy i'm liking it a lot good yeah yeah We've sort of uh, launched right into the pod without even doing the banter, but um, uh, but we had to explain where we are. That's right. That became the banter, I guess. I got distracted. Uh, it is late September in a glorious fall afternoon. It's like mid-September. Isn't it mid I guess it's we're right at the solstice. It's mid to late September. Oh, yeah. It actually is the solstice. Yeah. It is the first day of fall. It could be. It yeah. might be tomorrow. But anyway. Uh, well, it's the 21st of September as we record this. That's right. Uh, and it feels like fall. It's a beautiful day, but it is still a little bit brisk. Uh, the, the the air is not getting very much above 70 degrees today. That seems to be, looking at the, the long-term forecast, that's going to be where we are for a while. And in a nod to uh, a few years back, a uh, great friend of the pod, my son Simon's with us uh, in the audience. So, yes. Hi, Simon. He doesn't want to say hi. He's back. relatively disinterested in all of these things, which uh, I appreciate. Uh, so, how you been, Jeff? I have been pretty good. You've been out of town. Yeah, I just got back from Rhode Island, which delayed us for a week. Uh, yeah, I. So sorry, folks. We I, were one week delayed, but here we are. New fret, new pod. For some reason, I don't know what was going on. Um, I have I've been holding us up, and so I apologize to everyone uh, for our lack of potting. That comes to me, but. Um, yeah, actually, I was staying in Newport, Rhode Island, but um, the wedding I was there to attend of my niece was in Bristol, Rhode Island, and she had her, I don't even know what the thing is, the party before the, the, the night before the wedding. Rehearsal party? I guess. But it was in a brewery. Ah, very nice. Uh, and I did not schedule that or have anything to do with it, and uh, it was at a brewery called Pivotal Brewing, and... The guy pulling the pint seemed to know a lot about beer, and I never really announced myself or mentioned that I write about beer, but I kept going back and buying more beer and buying more beer, and we kept having good conversations, and it finally turned out that uh, 
His name is Todd Nicholson, and he was the owner, as I had at, at a certain point guessed he must be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he is super into fresh hop beers. Wow. And he is going to put on tap, it was in the tank, a little bit premature even for trying, a fresh hop beer made with Massachusetts Cascade hops. Oh, nice. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, he's, he said he will send me some of that beer. Uh, and I'm going to hold him to that. <laughs> All right. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah. You, of course, were staying on your yacht in Newport. That's 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 right. Slumming it in Brist- what do you say, Bristol? Uh, no, we were actually staying in Newport, and the, 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 the wedding was in Bristol. Right, so, so we you were... mean, like, you, you deigned to leave your yacht. And, that's right. Yeah. That's right. No, there Hobnobbing was a... with the rich and famous in Newport. There was. I went through this big crisis. People who are familiar with New England may appreciate this or not. Uh... It was supposed to be a semi-formal wedding, and ain't nothing about me that's even the word formal. I, I, I get nowhere near it. And I don't really have slack, so I had some jeans with my, my, uh, my jacket that I got made for the book tour. And uh, then I got to Newport, which is one of the wealthiest enclaves of old money on the planet. Um, there are, like, mansions that the Rockefellers built and whatnot, and I got really panicked. I went through this big crisis because <laughs> Oregonians just do not know what to do with that kind of uh, formality. It's not our jam. Yeah. Well, my mother and my sister live in London. My sister got married a few years back, and one of the functions, the dress code was smart. Oh, smart. Very British. Yes. Smart. And everybody knew what that meant. <laughs> I had to look that one up. <laughs> uh, hey, I had a triumph which I mentioned on the pod only because I think I've mentioned this in the past in the pod, which is um, I finally unlocked my safe. I have a the gun safe? The gun safe in oh my basement. Oh my God, that's a huge deal. Yeah, so for those who might not know, uh, I bought this house in 2008. It had a gun safe in the basement. Turns out you can't remove the gun safe because they finished parts of the basement and it won't fit out, so you're stuck. And it's a big, giant thing. It's like, I don't know, six by four by two or something like that. It's giant. It's heavy as heck and uh, it has the has the uh, the um, combination right on it and I've tried and tried and tried and tried and never been able to open it well finally it dawned on me that like everything else in this world you just go on YouTube uh-huh. and so it took me probably about 30 seconds to actually look this up on YouTube and figure out how, what I'm doing wrong which was one minor detail at the very end um, did you have the uh the combo? The yeah, and I knew I had the combo because they showed it to me when I was buying the house because I wanted to make sure I could open that thing. But then every 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 since I tr- every other time I tried, I couldn't do it. So it turns out it's got it's one of those that has a combo and a little handle. Uh huh. So I get to the end of the combo, set it right at the last number, and try the handle. But no, 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 you can't do that. You have to turn it the other way until it stops, and then that handle opens. So for those of you who have problems with your gun safe and your <laughs> your face. It was always empty, but it was taking up a lot of room. I was going to ask, was it full? I thought it was going to be an Al, no, Al it was open. thing. No, it was open when I bought the house, but I, was, I had young kids, and I worried about like them accidentally locking the, each other in the safe. Which, which so now, I, now that it's 15 years later, that seems like a good bet. Yeah, that, they probably they, wouldn't have lasted that long. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I could like dribble some water in there. No. <laughs> no, so I locked it, thinking, oh, I'll just open it when I need it, and then I could never open it again. I couldn't really be arsed to do it because didn't really need it but I was finally cleaning out the basement I thought you know it would be really useful to at least use this as storage right else. right. you can put a lot of garbage so, you never want to see in there so I just wanted to say I've triumphed over my safe nice. now I have a working safe <laughs> that, that is, is 
that that that's bedeviled you for 15 years. I can't believe that I, you didn't. It has somehow. I know. I feel, out I, feel, about I, feel that. I feel very triumphant, but also very stupid that I didn't think about YouTubing this ages yeah. ago. Yeah, because I was thinking, because the realtor who sold to me had to go to like a locksmith and, and ask them how to do it, and I was like, wait a minute, there's this thing called YouTube. Usually, you can find stuff there. <laughs> sure enough. Yes. All right. Well, as we mentioned, we join you in today in the field where we're hard at work drinking the latest crop of fresh hop beers. For the second year in a row, we have decamped to Loyal Legion. It's our local pub. It has reliably one of the best selections of fresh hop beers in town. Yeah, I really stepped on my own intro there. By the, by the way, they're building one of these things in the new, the, the new improved Portland airport. Loyal Legion? Yes. Oh, that is awesome. I know. It's going to be in the main concourse. You can get to it. Um, you don't have to go through security. It's going to be this big second floor thing. They're building this big, triumphant, gigantic terminal that has big windows and stuff. Due to be finished in 2036, I think. 2024. It should be, it, the Loyal Legion should be operational, I would guess, in the next six months or something. So, there you go. If you go there, they're known for, and I hope they have it, but they may not because sometimes they have to have a, like a, a third-party person do the food, but... If they have their corn dog there, it's world famous corn dog. <laughs> you just been trying to sell my son. You did successfully sell my son on this corn dog. It's a, it's, it, uh, it's, it's true. Cor- corn dogs were invented here in Oregon, as were all good things. At the Pronto Pup. At the Pronto Pup in Rockaway Slight, Beach. Slightly disputed, but uh, all Oregonians uh, agree. Yeah, we we lockstep we that own it the, is here. We own the corn dog. <laughs> so, and they make a, an excellent kind of like artisanal corn dog. Yes, so. it's a it's a Olympia Provisions Frankfurter hand dipped in cornmeal batter. And fried to perfection. Yes. As we're about to find out when our food comes. But we sit here, turn our tongues green. Turning our tongues green, we're going to discuss the hop harvest because Jeff and I went down to Coleman Farms in Enterprise, Oregon a few weeks back to witness the hop harvest. Did I write Enterprise? It was not Enterprise. Uh, Independence. You did not write it. I added that. Very good. Badly. Yeah. Independence, Oregon. <laughs> Enterprises. Yeah. Out that blue I think, that's really far away. <laughs> Uh, it came up recently for some other reason. That's why it was in my mind. Uh, Independence, Oregon. Uh, we are hosted by Coleman Farms and Yakima Chief, of which they're a part, the, the hop farmers co- cooperative. Uh, we witnessed the hop har- harvest, so we're going to walk you through the process that it takes. Uh, 20-foot-tall vines sunning themselves in the field that turn into the T90 pellets that breweries use to make beer. Indeed. I kind of skewered your intro, but it's pretty close. We got got this guy backing up over here. Yeah, we are outside. We thought it would be nice to be out in the fresh air, and it is. We thought it would be slightly quieter, and it may or may not be, depending on what happens to be coming by. That's right. But these are all the ambient sounds of life in Portland, Oregon. What you don't hear is rioting, murdering, burning, and looting. Right. Come on down. It's not that bad. That's right. (laughs) All right. All that soon, but first, the news. As we record this, people are currently celebrating at two notable festivals, the Great American Beer Festival in Denver and the slightly lesser known Oktoberfest in Munich. (laughs) One is a Volksfest that serves beer from just six breweries. The other is a beer geek fandango with about 500 breweries pouring their beer. But either way, it means the harvest drinking season has arrived. Soon it will be time for the Fresh Hop Festival. Yeah, baby. That's right. the really good stuff. By the way, I used to live and work in Denver. And I used to work in my office. I was at the University of Colorado at Denver. My office was right around the corner from the convention center. So the Great American Beer Festival happens in the 
the Denver Convention Center. They call it the Colorado Convention Center? I believe they do call it the Colorado Convention Center. I think it's called the Colorado Convention Center. And everybody knows a big dog. And you know it's Great American Beer Festival time because you've got a million bleary-eyed individuals with plastic cups staggering out of the convention center. Like, this is not your normal convention. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, we were just talking about uh, the Oktoberfest in Munich is uh, definitely a bucket list item for me. Got to happen. Got to happen soon because you never know. I'm getting uh, on. I'm getting well, on in years. I just had a birthday. Well, uh, you, yeah, I think it's not, maybe not, you know, you're probably not going to die in the next two years or anything. But I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think we should go. We talked about inviting some brewer, brewer friends, like maybe get a whole Oregon contingent and just get our fest on, man. You, do you, am I right? Do you own Leader Hosen? Do I what? Do you own Lederhosen? Am no, I- no, no. I owned Lederhosen when I was a kid. Oh, when you were a kid. And I have uh, no idea of the provenance of those Lederhosen. I don't know how I got them and why, but I had Lederhosen as a kid. Uh, yeah, just one of those random things. I I'll bet, have to ask my, my mom at some point. I, I bet there is an artisanal Oregon Lederhosen designer and maker. We could all buy Oregon Lederhosen. Free-range leather. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> like maybe from Roadkill... Or something, you know. <laughs> that's that's really free range. That's right. That's off the range. <laughs> you know, harm free. Well, at least not caused by. But the, when uh, I was in Bavaria, uh, and we were being shown around, my wife hosted a, a exchange student when she was in high school, uh, and then they did a reverse exchange, and so um, uh, in Erlingen, um, which is near Munich, uh, I saw the Lederhosen shop. Yes. <laughs> Which yeah. is pretty awesome. And I was tempted. Tempted, I tell you, but I didn't do it. Yeah, Sally and I walked past a Lederhosen shop, too. It was a Lederhosen in Dernville, Dernville shop. shop. Yes, yes, this one was, too. And I'm like, I'm getting Lederhosen, and I bombed in there, and I looked at the price tag, and I bombed right back out, because <laughs> Lederhosen are really expensive. Yeah, speaking of artisanal leather. <laughs> That's right. I mean, German artisans make them out of leather, Absolutely. and they're not cheap. Uh, so, yeah. All right, but if we go to Munich... Let's make a pact. We're doing it in Lederhosen. All right, we got to do it in Lederhosen. And I, w- I really want one of those cool like, little hats. The, the, With the, the feather. The fedora, yeah the, yeah. the 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 Bavarian fedora. Those things are absolutely. Those are badass. We'll do we gotta get, Yeah, we got to get those. We'll do the full ninety. That's right. I mean, if you're going all the way there, the full month. Uh, the full uh, like Dieter. The full, the full Dieter. Full <laughs> <laughs> Hans. The full Hans. All right, uh, our second item. This, this is for you, Patrick. Okay. Uh, we have to go a little off-road for this next piece, which is, affects Patrick more than beer. Wow. It's just too big to ignore. Over the summer, all but two of the erstwhile Pac-12 colleges jump ship to join other conferences. <laughs> In a puckish rebuke, Washington State and Patrick's own Oregon State Beavers have filed a lawsuit to prevent the remaining members from raiding Pac-12 coffers as they go. Uh, the whole thing is a mess, and it will affect the West Coast for a long time. And I, I throw this to you, Patrick. What the hell, man? Yeah, rat bastards trying to screw us. Yeah. Uh, okay, so there's so many things to say about this. Nothing has to do with beer. No, it doesn't. However. But, but you are a professor at Oregon State. It, could, it, it cannot be ignored. But you and I are both Wisconsin grads, and having... Yeah. Having Oregon and Washington in the back and the Big Ten is just crazy. It's terrible and stupid. The I pack- mean, we still don't accept. I 
I personally still don't even accept Penn State. I mean, that's where I am. Rutgers, Maryland. I mean, ridiculous. Yeah. It's it's all pretty ridiculous. But the, the Pac-12 is a coherent, rational thing. It is. And for it to just die is completely irrational and stupid. All has to do with football money. The, yeah. m- the smartest thing I ever heard, which I agree with entirely, was Chip Kelly, the old Oregon coach who's now the UCLA coach, saying, just let football do its own thing. Right. And don't drag all the other sports with them. Yeah. Which I think is very sensible. Yeah, because if you're a tennis player at Cal or Oregon and you got to go out to Rutgers to play a tennis match, I yeah. mean, come on. I know, it's crazy. And it's completely against the mission of of the student, the student athlete. athlete. There's yeah. no student left there if you have to travel for four days to play a tennis match. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. These kids are already stretched enough. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that here's my take about all of this, including professionalism in college sports. Is I think the big revenue college sports, but football in particular, should just be a for-profit operation with professional players that is run by the foundations that every single school has, the for-profit foundation, which is the fundraising arm of the schools. Mm-hmm. Let them have it. They can operate the team as the Oregon State Beavers or the Stanford Cardinal or whatever, Wisconsin Badgers. And don't pretend it's amateur anymore. Don't really pretend it has anything to do with academics. It's fundraising. It's a fundraising operation. We're doing it. We're going to charge you a lot to watch the team. and. That's all good. And then it's all rationalized at that point. It's always been in the hands of the boosters, and you just want that above board. Yeah, yeah. Boosters can pay what they want. You pay You pay the athletes. They can. They should be allowed to take classes and get a degree if they want, but... And then and then if you are a tennis player, you can go ahead and, uh, you know, drive a half an hour over to Oregon and, and play your match, and, you know, it's good good times. Yeah, so it's it's too bad, but I'm all for the two-pack now. <laughs> the two-pack, I know. The, and, the two-pack And, and the, the, the two-pack is, is, is standing up. Uh, this this lawsuit has really amused me. I, I loved, uh, I mean, they, they have all the power. It's going to be like fascinating legal. to see how it works out, but right now, according to the bylaws, they essentially should control all of the assets of the Pac-12, these right. two remaining schools. And it's worth a lot over the next two years because there's a two-year sort of period in which the NCA basically recognizes them as the full Pac-12. Right. They get all the rights of the f- and revenues of the full Pac-12. So that's what uh, Washington State and Oregon State are working on, and uh, we'll see. And everybody just assumed that they would jump ship to somebody else, but actually the idea that they might rehabilitate the Pac-12 or lure other schools into the Pac-12, which uh, you know is, is certainly something that should be on the table, would make a lot more sense if there were already revenue there to, yeah. to lure other schools. I think my best guess about the end game is that it'll be the it'll the the branding will remain. It'll still be the Pac-12. It'll essentially be mostly the Mountain West with those two remaining Pac-12 teams, uh, but called the Pac-12. And you know, it won't get any any way near where the revenue of the Big 12, SEC, and Big 10 teams do. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm i kind of glad that you're I, – I instantly became a Beavers fan. I mean, I was, was sort of a Beavers fan, but uh, as a Pac-12-adjacent uh, person, I didn't ever go to a school in the Pac-12, but I have always lived in the, the catchment area of the Pac-12. I'm like, screw all of you other guys. That's just <laughs> terrible. I, I, just, I you know, I kind of lost respect for a lot of them. And, and the Beavers, <laughs> probably because they didn't have a lot of choice, but still – they become the the champion, my champion. The, you know, the pick your fighter. I pick beavers. Yeah, I, I mean, I worked there. I'm not super uh, invested fan, but yeah, I. It would have been interesting if this law, this injunction hadn't happened, 
Uh, and what happened, what they suspected was going to happen did, which was that the remaining people who were leaving the Pac-12 basically voted to dissolve the Pac-12 and split up the assets, which was what they were worried about, yeah. what Oregon State and Washington they were worried about. I would have been very interested to see if Washington and Oregon did that to their neighbor states and the state government and how the state government responded. Like, yeah, are they yeah. really going to let them just basically financially screw their neighbors? Yeah. That we all get funded by taxpayer dollars? So we'll see. We would yeah. have... Who knows? That may still come. We'll see. It, yeah, that's right. It's very interesting. The whole thing is very interesting. And um, I, I know that this is a beer podcast. So thank you for indulging us. Patrick works at the Beavers, works for the Beavers. So that's my shoe. But I thought I wanted it. I didn't. I didn't even let you know this. This item was coming out because I wanted. <laughs> no, I, your, I wanted your fresh take. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's my fresh take. We should move to the hop harvest, man. Yeah, we so should. It wasn't long ago. Last week. Two. I think. Two weeks. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> we're old. Time, recently, the time loses its meaning when you're as old as we are. That's right. Recently, we were down in Independence, Oregon. That's right. Not Enterprise. Uh, at the Hop Harvest at Coleman Farms. Right. Uh, who hosted us. Thank you very much, Coleman Farms, for hosting us. Here's more urban sounds. The Sintas uniform truck <laughs> comes by. Uh, so we were down in Coleman Farms, hosted by Coleman Farms and Yakima Chief, which is the Hop Farmer Collective that they're a part of. Yep. So thank you very much for hosting us. But we got to see the basically the whole hop harvest, including some extra stuff, which is kind of cool. Yeah, and some of the extra stuff was really cool. So I, I do want to explain what the hop harvest is like because I think people probably haven't uh, most people will have never seen it you hadn't seen it I hadn't uh, and it's a very interesting process and it's I think unusual even in the agricultural world because it's such a weird product yeah uh, but um, some of the extra stuff was really cool and, and the first thing we did they had that stations and we happened our little group happened to go uh, talk to a soil biologist right off the bat and that was super fascinating because Part, partly because he oriented us to where we were in the world, and we didn't have, we had no idea, but the Willamette River was literally a stone's throw away, but it was behind a bank of trees, and we didn't, we'd just driven in there, and we didn't realize how close we were to the Willamette, and we yeah. were on this alluvial plain, was, yeah. uh, and and so he described uh, the plant, uh, the I'm sorry, the soil biology, and how that differs from Yakima, which is more elevated, drier climate, more alkaline soil, and also Idaho is similar. Yeah. Uh, and even other farms in the Willamette Valley, which are not like literally right in the Willamette yeah, River. Yeah, slightly higher up and yeah. Are, yeah, are full of sediment. And then even within the same hop field, you can have areas that are more sandy, areas that are less sandy. So some will hold more water, some will drain more water. And so depending on how you treat those hops can depend on the little you know, hectare by hectare, I suppose. And all of those things will affect the flavor of your hop in noticeable ways, in ways that a regular, you know, one of us regular beer drinkers could tell. We'd harvested uh, a citra hop at the, in the alluvial valley of, uh, of the Willamette River uh, versus Yakima. You, can, you could definitely tell the two different the differences of those two hops in a beer. Um, so it, it was it was super fascinating just to hear about that. Uh, so thanks for giving us that little value add. Yeah. Uh, but we should talk about the hop harvest because it's a cool thing. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me to begin with, by the way, is just the way the hops are grown. Looked identical to what I saw in Bavaria, speaking of. Oh, when you drove through the hop fields, you mean? Yeah, just driving on the, the freeway from, yep. in this case, um, we were going from... Uh, uh, 
I can't remember what. Anyway, driving in, into you, or out of Munich. Were you coming from the north yes. into Munich? So yeah. you went, those are the Hollertal Hopfields. The Hollertal Hopfields. Yeah. They look exactly the same. They're yeah. big wooden posts with wires strung between. And then the hop uh, plants, the hop vine, vines. Vines. They're technically vines. We should just, let me, uh, you finish that and I'll tell you the difference between vine well, and vine. Well, you've, you've given me this spiel before, so I was listening to the Coleman people and they were kind of just talking about both so yeah and I think you, it's good not to get too slavish about that just because right but but it, but I'm it's just pointing that out that I think they yes. just use the term vines because it's and I, yeah and I think uh, you, it's fine to use vines anyway the vines grow on these wires that are suspended what 20 feet 20 feet up yeah, yeah. I think I think they say uh, I think they say five meters in uh, in Germany, so five meters or twenty feet, something like that. Yeah, something like fifteen, maybe six meters. Six me, maybe six meters. Okay. They say. Yes, yeah, that's, that's yeah six meters probably. Uh, yeah, so you've got these horizontal wires between these big wooden posts, and then from those horizontal wires, is it string or is it wire that dangles down that the the vines grow up? It's it can be it can be wire, but I think it's it's some kind of. It's more than string, but I think it's not all wire because they have wires, structural things that hold them up. But, right. I, but I think the things that the vines actually grow on are yeah, because you got to like cut not, them. Yeah, you do have to cut and them, and then you process them. And I don't think you want metal wire. Right. I don't, and I don't think it is metal. But it's got to it's be something that survives the, the season. So yeah. Uh, so that's what it looks like, and it looks like row upon row upon row of these these vines, vines that are growing. I don't know, spaced what five feet apart or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I never thought about that, but yeah, that seems right to me. And uh, they get an enormous amount of yield. Two meters. Okay. For our international <laughs> audience. They get an enormous amount of yield, it seems to me, from a fairly small uh, plot, uh, uh, acreage. So the I think the standard, uh, when, they're, when you're talking about the agronomy of hops and whether a hop will be a successful commercial product or not, in hop growing regions, you want to get 2,000 pounds per acre. Ah, so really some hops, right. some varieties will give you more, some will give you less. Citra is famously a low producer. Ah. It's it's it, it it's on the the shallow end of that pool. Yeah. And if it weren't Citra, I think you know there'd be a problem there. But it is Citra, so they they live with that. But when they're breeding hops, if if it doesn't, you know, if you only get a thousand acres, it doesn't matter if it's the best hop in the world. They're just gonna dump that thing. Yeah, uh, it's gotta it's gotta meet uh, a certain basic baseline for how many pounds per acre it, it produces and I think two thousand it correct me if I'm wrong, but it's an annual crop, right? You get one one nope, harvest? It is a perennial. a perennial. And this actually is valuable. Sorry, uh, I misspoke though. What I mean is you get one harvest a year. Oh you get one harvest a year, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know it's a peren- yeah it re- does regrow. But go ahead. Go say what well, you're it's, say. Uh, in terms of water resources, the fact that it's a perennial is a good thing because right. uh, when you have a deep root structure uh, you don't have to use as much water, right. uh, so that that is valuable, especially as we're getting into the period of time when uh, there's less water and more heat. And yeah. It does raise an economic question, which is that if you decide you want to change the varieties you have, that means you've got to dig up some of the existing perennials and put new varieties in. Yeah, you do, and if you uh, have been following the, the industry um, notes, you'll know that uh, we're in a period of retraction. Uh, so they tear they tear hops out of the fields, and then later they may plant more hops in those same fields. And it takes a couple of years for them to bear uh, enough hops to get to that 2,000 acres. It, it, the first year they won't well, they won't get all the way to 2,000 acres. 
so yeah it's uh it's it's not quite like an orchard but it's more it's easier to think of it kind of in the terms of like what an orchard is like rather than uh you know corn or something which you you, you get seed every year and plant yeah, the seed because those same hops will sprout again next season if you yes. leave them. right yeah and and really old hops there is a diminishing uh amount they, they will diminish over time and produce less and less and less and there was a period and i can't remember when this was it was a few years ago when the the citra hops came into vogue in about 2008 and a lot of fields got planted and um, a few years ago some of those fields were starting to produce less and less and less so they were no longer commercially viable Mm -hmm. so at some point you may have to pull the hops out of a field uh, and replant them with the same hops just to kind of give them some oomph and I know uh, that one of the people who listens to this podcast is Max Coleman who was one of our hosts and if I get anything wrong Max is going to email me so uh, Max um, I'm I'm bookmarking this right now Uh, I apologize if I get anything wrong but I think that's right yeah, and, and we're going to uh, uh, have Max on in a, uh, a future pod in the near future. Yes. Um, and he can... He's going to tell us about the business of hops, which yeah. is a totally separate thing than we're talking about today, but super fascinating. In fact, we, we considered having him on to talk about the harvest, but the truth is a couple of palookas like us can talk about the harvest, yeah. uh, but we do not have the capacity to talk about the business. So, so you have all these vines that are... That are suspended. Oh, yeah, but I do have to say, oh. I'm pedants are my people and my and i am a pedant and we have to say the difference between a vine and a vine is a a vine with a v like victor will will throw out a little uh a little grabber uh and it will it will hang on and a vine just coils around things and so it's a technical distinction but a hop is a vine so it does the coiling thing It, it spirals up one of these uh these strings that goes up the, the thing. Yes. So that's that, that's the technical. That said, you're fine calling it a vine. They call yeah. it a vine. So yeah, yeah. anyway, uh, so these are all, these are all suspended 20 feet up, uh, row upon row of of these vines that are about two feet apart, and so you got to get them down. Yep. So how do they do that? So uh, because it's such a specialized industry, they don't have. You can't go to John Deere and say. We need a hop picker. I'd like your hop harvester, please. Yeah, <laughs> no such thing. So they rig up these these trucks that will go through first and snip the bottom of the vine at mm-hmm. the ground level, and then they go back and they they clip the top, and they, the 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 uh, the vine will fall into the bed of a truck behind the clipper. Right. So they 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 gather it that way, and uh, Patrick actually will will maybe post some photos. Patrick, they. As we were sitting yeah, there, I'll add some more. As we were uh, going our tour, we would keep seeing these trucks coming from because they were not harvesting right where we were. Yep. So these trucks kept coming in from other places with all these this, the, yeah. the vines. And you were telling me that during hop season, the the harvest basically goes 24 hours a day. Yeah. Uh, and these trucks, by this point, it was in the early evening on a Wednesday, I think. If, memory serves uh and these trucks just kept rolling in rolling yeah. in rolling in rolling in <laughs> because they can't all come in at once they're, they're just out there they're cutting down the vines and then they got to bring the vines to the next step which is the processing plant right uh yeah so um because everybody did cut back a little bit this year um they were doing 24 hours for five days a week at goshi and i can't remember if max told us what they were doing there but i think they did tell us it wasn't quite it was something like 20 hours a day and something i can't remember exactly yeah. but it wasn't wasn't quite but it's it's around the clock for a month basically yeah um, 
So then, uh, and you should hop in here, you've seen this just like I have. So the next thing is you've got this giant mass of, of bind and hop in the back of a truck. So you have to figure out a way to get the hops off the, off the, off the plant. Yeah, this is where I got really interested because I, <laughs> I find this stuff fascinating. Yeah, so you describe this piece. Well, okay, so if you know what hops look like, think of a vine or a bind, whichever comes to mind. A uh, grapevine is a good example, mm-hmm. but you've got these little flowers, essentially, these little cones that they are. They look fl- like yeah, they look like little pine cones. They look like little pine cones, but they're soft and and, and, and vegetal, uh, and there's leaves around them that are doing the photosynthesis, and then you've got the vine itself. So you, what you want are the little flowers, and you don't want the leaf, and you don't want the vine. So you have to figure out a way to get that stuff separated, and so it's a multi-step process. The first thing they do is go through this sort of beater that kind of strips the vines. And essentially, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially you can think about it as stripping the vine of the of the flowers and a lot of the leaves. Right, it takes, it seems like it, they end up with the just the rope of the vine right. afterwards. It like takes, it just pulls everything off. So of the first step you get, you get it off the vine. And so you've got all this flower, but you also got all this leaf. And this is where things get sort of interesting. You should take it from here because you understand this part better. Yeah, so they, somebody figured out that uh, the leaves are flat and the hops are round. And so they use a series of blowers or vacuums, and I think it varies depending on, and, and again, I, I, I think these, the, the equipment is maybe a little bit bootstrappy. I'm not sure how many, uh, yeah. I, I know, uh, I think the one that they had there, it sounds like at, at, at that particular hop farm uh, was manufactured elsewhere, but um, they vary a little bit. But anyway, the, 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 the ticket is you uh, use air to, to trap the flat uh, leaf against something and then the hop bounces off. So a wire mesh. Right, so like a wire mesh so you can like suck it or blow it and they'll, they'll get trapped on the, the wire mesh and then the hops bounce off. Right. And, and, and you go through a series of, of, of different pieces that look quite a bit the same and, and you get more and more and more of the stuff you don't want, more and more and more of the stuff you do want. And at the end of the day, you end up with a big uh, pile of, of, of hops and, and uh, the one that we were at uh, when we visited Coleman, they said they get they get over 99% hops, only one less than 1% of other stuff, which yeah. is pretty darn good. Yeah, and and that's important because in the end you want this pure hop material. Leaf stuff sucks. Yeah, right. Cause off flavors and yeah, not what brewers want. Uh, okay, so that's the separation stage. So there's a big building in which they just do the separation. Yeah. And then there's a big. Um, uh, what kiln? Well, I was going to say the belt that takes it. The, oh, right, a conveyor belt. A conveyor belt that takes all the hot flour into the next building, which is the kiln. Yeah. And the kiln is just a place where you lay out hops on these very elaborate, elevated beds that will eventually tilt and 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 expel the hops. But you dump them in these elevated beds, and underneath the beds, you force hot air up into the hot beds. Yep. And it, I think they start out at 80% humidity or liquid, and you want to get them down to like 8% or something like something that. Something like that, yeah. Well, we, again, Max, apologies. Yeah, again, we had this all explained to us, but we're too lazy to go back and remember. And I've heard it. I've heard it many times, and so. But there's there a target. Go. There's a target moisture content you want in your hops, and so they're working there. They spread these hops out. I forget again all these details. We probably should have taken notes, but they're about what four feet deep or something in hops. 
I think it was six. But six sure. feet deep in hops. <laughs> Two meters. And a meter uh, and a half. This is one thing you can see on the Instagram is that um, they do a pretty good job evenly drying these out, but sometimes there's little pockets, like dense little pockets that, that uh, are, are um, uh, losing their moisture more slowly. And they have very sensitive equipment, apparently, that actually tells them this. And so sometimes you have to go and kind of rustle those, those little pockets out. And uh, uh, it turns out that they use snowshoes for the people to walk out onto these hot beds and uh, disrupt these little portions that are too dense that are not getting dry enough. Uh, so I have a little picture of the, of the snowshoes that are, that are there. I thought that was hilarious. It's, it's one of the most amazing things for anybody who's interested in, in beer, especially hops, to yeah. see the hop kiln because it, it's about as big as a football field. I always feel like I'm looking at a football field. Yeah, yeah that's about right. And some, uh, some good pictures on the Insta. Yeah, and it's just hops. Uh, it's just a, imagine yeah. a football field of hops. Yeah. <laughs> it's like crazy amount of hops. And when they're dry and ready, this entire elevated bed gets tilted, so they all flow off into uh, a conveyor belt. Another one that takes them to the next building. And the next building is where they all get dumped in good, good pictures of this on the Insta, where they all get dumped into these big piles of hops, and they, they get um, released from high above and all float down into the piles. So we have a picture that's raining hops. You can see Jeff and I, uh, you can see Jeff and me standing there in front of the hops fields. And that's just before they get bailed. Right. And that's where they, they, uh, uh, they cool off. So yes. they're like from the kiln, they cool. They're dry now, and they just need to be bailed up. This, in this hop field, they don't do the pelletization, so they're just bailing them and then sending them up to Yakima. Right, and then they, they can pelletize them later. So they'll bail them up and put them in cold storage immediately. Uh, and all of this will uh, preserve the hop. And by the, at this point, um, uh, the whole process is so good that the hops can remain preserved like... Um, uh, if there's, there are still hops on the market from uh, 2022, 2021, yeah. and those hops have lost very little of the, the good stuff. Uh, so they, the, this whole process delivers a product that is incredibly, sh sh not really shelf stable, but like uh, warehouse stable. Yeah. Uh, so that they can remain valuable for for literally years. Right. When properly stored. Yeah. When properly stored. And it you do the drying and all that stuff, and that prepares the hop to, to drive these. They didn't actually have the baling operation happening while we were there, but you can see a big press, so they could basically compress the flour into these big bricks, and then they bag them up. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know, it looked like you'd end up with something that's something like, I don't know, 4x4x4 four by four by four or 6x6x6? Six by they're, six by six they're more like, uh, they're longer and skinnier, okay. so they're... Uh, yeah, they're more like a coffin. They're shaped like a coffin. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, trivia quiz: What is the in, in England? What is the shape of the bale, and what are they called? Uh, round, and they're called round. Uh, round is correct. Okay. You get half. You get half credit. They're called pockets. Oh, pockets. Yeah. Yes. That yeah. sounds very. It does sound British. very. It yes. sounds very British, doesn't it? Pockets. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so that that's the harvest. Um, and if you have a chance to go, you should go. It's really, I, going to the, 
nobody goes to the hop harvest and goes into the hop fields and watches this process that doesn't have a smile on their face. If you care at all about, like, why would you go there if you don't care about beer? So obviously, yeah, yeah. they care about beer, but otherwise, you're gonna love it. Yeah, and uh, we went as a little event that was happening just before this sort of hop harvest festival that Independence Oregon has. Um, so that's that seemed like a really fun way. But Coleman Farms is clearly set up for. Uh, visitors and tours and so yeah and I think I, I don't know how if you don't have a, a connection like we get an invitation I'm not sure exactly how to do that but uh, there are breweries that will take trips down there and yeah. if you're really curious um, check check into ways to to uh, visit because I, I I don't I think they love to have people out there it's just yeah. a matter of managing bodies and all that so they're really gracious. Every time I've ever been there, I mean, they're working hard. It's like long, hard, sweaty work, but they, they're they also kind of enjoying it, and it seems like they like people around as well. So one of the benefits of living in and near hops, but even nowadays, probably just about anywhere in the U.S. you can get fresh hop beers, Yes, is that brewers will take advantage of this season and will go, and they'll grab hops in between the what separation process and the kilning process. That's right. And they'll get a whole bunch of fresh hop beers that have not yet been kilned and rush them off to their breweries and usually within 24 hours they will have put them in some kind of beer oh yeah in oregon the cool thing is it's way less than 24 hours yeah the the, the longer you know you can't you can't keep not, them very long before they start degrading very that's quickly. right yeah. it's not it's not really it's not quite minute by minute but it's pretty close and partly because when you have a mass of hops even if you just have a bag that comes from the uh the hop grower there, that mass will get warmer and warmer and warmer, and that begins to degrade the hops. So the quicker that you can get them... Uh, all right. Now hey, Wes, now Wes, Wes is, now, now Wes is on, just Wes. walking by. <laughs> How are you doing? <laughs> We're talking about the hop harvest on the podcast here. Did you see my... I just called you a minute ago to ask you about where the best place to find fresh hop beers were. And well, you, you found the and, place. And you found the place. I figured you'd be here. Where's the best fresh hop beers are? Here we are. You have made fresh hop ciders, right? Uh, quite a few times. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell us what it's like to go down? Man, you couldn't have walked up at a better time than this. <laughs> what, what, is, what is it like to go down and pick up a bag of hops? Like, how, how does that whole process work? Well, you have to get the tour if you've never had the tour before. We, we just talked about the tour. Good. And you have to... I don't think you do it anymore, but you used to like lay in the hop piles. Yeah, apparently they frown on that now. It's like I mean, food and hops so. are food. Yeah, so that's kind of dumb. Yeah. Good idea, don't do that. Yeah. Uh, no, it's really awesome to be able to see that process happening. You got to see it once for sure. Um, it's fun to also, you know, we live in Oregon, so we can go to the fields as they're growing, not just at the end during the harvest. But those folks work incredibly hard during the harvest, right. and they have to manage all these different schedules of different varieties coming ripe at different times and that you got to go from all, like planted in the ground to uh, pelletized or, or cryopacked or however they're doing it fast so I don't envy uh, farmers at all because they sit around for 11 and a half months and then they work their asses off right. so tough job it's a slow amazing process to see. You, you wait you wait wait and then it's go time absolutely I, it's amazing to see and it's great to great that we have access to those incredible hops I pity the people in North Dakota trying to make fresh hot beers. Oh, yeah. yeah, we used to, of course, everybody does this, but we used to joke that it was like six hours from harvest 
to you know in keg sometimes. We were just talking about fast. that. How yeah. how quickly it can be done Very if, you, if you if you live nearby. So you would get a call. So let's say uh, you're you're gonna make a cider. Yep. You 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 have you have already coordinated with the hop grower. In like, August or July, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you want you want like a citra, you you particular you, varieties. Yeah, you, yep. you pick your variety, and then you have to is it you have to wait? Is that right? Yeah, you have to wait, and then they'll say this is the day you have to be here. Maybe you can come the following morning, but you really should be here on this day, at this time for this amount. Uh, yeah, and you just get them and drive back as fast as you can, drop them in. Tank. You got to bring a big truck. Big truck. Yeah, the bales are big. Yeah, I mean they're size of a human, give or take. Uh, and we would only get like, you know, two or three bales at a time. So not not something you couldn't fit into a station wagon if you needed to. Right, right. You're not the shoots brewery, so you, you, right. your tanks aren't that big. Yeah. But the cool part about it is that you could be a small brewery cidery like me and still get access uh, to the same freshness that the big guys could get. Yeah. And, and here you are out here looking for fresh hop beers, which is what, what every good Oregonian does yes, at this moment. Yes, yes. But only Oregonians and Washingtonians and That's Ida, Idahoans. I don't think it's a thing in Idaho, but maybe yeah. it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't think it's a thing. It's not this, a thing anywhere. Listeners can let us know. Really. Yeah. Yeah. If you're in Idaho, all our Idaho listeners, please. It's Oktoberfest uh, everywhere else. Yeah. That's right. It's true. That's, That's true. right. Which is not a bad alternative. Well, you and our listeners can benefit from the fact that we've had some fresh hop beers and the big trend this year that i'm noticing is lagers as we've mentioned yeah i will i want to i'm gonna go order one yeah all right well we uh maybe you should do that maybe you should join us if you're coming back i have some japanese friends here my japanese cider making friends are here for my uh parting party uh, this weekend, which oh, is which is Saturday. Saturday. So by, yeah. by the time the listeners hear this, it's you will have missed be, out on the opportunity <laughs> to be there. drink it. Yeah, we're, 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 we'll we'll be there. Yeah, we'll we'll okay, definitely good. we'll definitely be there. Will you be there? I will be there. All right. Drinking cider, not fresh hop lagers. Yeah, yeah. Fresh hop yeah. lagers are tonight. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Ciders are Saturday. Okay. okay. Well, fun to bump into you guys. Yeah, good to see you, man. I'll be on the show at some other point. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. Some reason. That's right. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> wow. That was. Uh, so this is what happens when you live in Portland. That's right. <laughs> you never know who you're going to bump into. That was a pretty perfect timing. Well, uh, speaking of fresh hop lagers, uh, I had a Wayfinder fresh hop Keller Pilsner, uh, which was really nice. It was nice. It was uh, I'd had it earlier, and this uh, it's made with Strata. Yeah, those Strata hops are pretty. Uh, pretty tangy mm. and it had it had it had diminished a bit it had diminished a bit yeah but it was a really good base beer for a diminishment which is different from the beer that i had which i'm not gonna match the brewery because it was blown and this is the thing about fresh hop beers sometimes you get a beer that's been been in the keg too long and it's blown yeah and there's something weird about fresh hop beers once they're blown they get a little weird yeah. and uh that's the but, beer that i had was like kind of uh, yeah but i'm gonna say this is just part of it like oh yeah like i'm not gonna criticize i mean once this is such a volatile beer yeah and once you get it out the door you don't have control of it and as a consumer i just get it like it's fresh hop season i hope i can get one that's just been put on you know it's just been made yesterday and it's put on on tap and once in a while you get something like that or my wayfinder which is a little older didn't had it was still a lovely beer, and it ta- was still, tasted great. It was still a lovely beer, and it was actually, I think, the beer received the the, the decay of the fresh hop yeah. in a way, yeah. in a far superior way than other styles yeah. do. It's like that rusticity kind of like, yeah. oh, it's so not. I just think you have to be open to it. Like it's an experience. Sometimes it's going to be as fresher, less fresh. You just just got to get out there and experience. You do. 
so that was really good. And then I had uh, Block 15 Pale Ale, which is phenomenal. Yeah. And I don't know what hops they use, but um, yeah, I'd like which, to find out. So. That's the one... All right, Loyal Legion. Our request is that you uh, include the hop information uh, yeah. <laughs> on the on the menu, so we, we know what we're we're dealing with here. Yeah. Uh, okay. Should, should we turn to the mailbag? I think we're we're getting a little long in the tooth here. We should probably do our mailbag. Yes. We encourage people to write in, and we should make sure we uh, we address that. Uh, should I start? Yes, please. All right. Uh, our first. Entry uh, comes from Jason Walker, and he wrote, I found your podcast over Labor Day weekend on the Log and Drive. In one of the episodes, one of you mentioned the loss of Anchor Brewing was more upsetting than a closure of a craft brewer usually is. That resonated with me. Anchor has been a part of my life since I was about four. In the late 1970s, I lived in San Francisco, and my parents drank Anchor Steam because it was the only decent beer you could buy back then. They also drank the Porter. I collected the bottle caps, and I still have them. When I started drinking beer in my late teens, I gravitated to Anchor Steam. My friends thought it tasted like, <laughs> quote, burnt toast, but I loved it. I really hope someone's able to save it. Uh, it really is the best damn beer. So uh, thank you, Jason. That was a nice uh, memorial to yeah. a brewery that is. Uh, we also feel uh, real tender. I haven't been following it too closely, but I know that uh, employees of the brewery are trying. They're doing. There's like some GoFundMe campaign. They're trying to, to, to buy it, but there's also some complication about the distribution of the assets and stuff, so I don't know. The liquidation process. I don't, yeah. know what the li- I don't know the latest is, but I'm hoping somehow some I, version of Anchor survives. It would be awesome. I think it's a long shot. I think the fact that sure. it's in San Francisco makes it such a bigger pull because the ground underneath that brewery that's is the, That's so the problem valuable. with the liquidation process, exactly. Yeah. Although, given the last 10 years, if there was any moment in which this could happen, this might be the one. That's Because true. commercial properties are stressed right now. And That's so true. there may not be a huge appetite. But anyway, we'll see. All right, uh, moving on, Bobby Elliott uh, writes, I wanted to reach out with a question that would seem easier to find the answer to than this. What is the shelf life of canned beer before its quality begins to take a hit? Very good question. I feel like I automatically check out the bottom of cans if it hasn't been canned within the past two months, I put it back. But is that reasonable? How do you generally approach it? Uh, thank you, Bobby. Yeah. So the, the industry standard in the United States is three months, yes. 90 days. Yeah. Uh, in, in Germany, it's six months, and that's too long. I think, I think, uh, I think three months is a, is a more reasonable uh, standard. And I actually, uh, years ago, sat in with the tasting panel at Widmer Brewing, and they uh, they did a, a nice check to see if their tasters were picking up what was going on, and uh, they they um, they do a bunch of stuff in the tasting panel. But one of the things they do is they taste a random beer and see what the tasting panel thinks of it. And it was a uh, it was a double IPA, their Nelson double IPA. I can't remember what the name of that thing was called. Maybe it was Nelson IPA. Uh, and everybody on the table except me, of course, I was drinking. And I'm like, I don't know, it tastes great to me. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, everyone said it's oxidized. It's starting to get oxidized. And it was 91 days or something. And they, right. they, they had just taken it off from the tap room, uh, the Widmer tap room. And so 
trained tasters could begin to taste the staling uh, compounds and the sort of dullness that was happening in the beer. At three months. At three months. Yeah. And I think uh, for most beer styles, you're going to be fine for three months. Yeah. Some beer styles will definitely uh, uh, change over that period of time. Yeah. American IPAs will change. Uh, sometimes they won't necessarily change for the worse, but they'll they'll go through. It's a dynamic chemical, and so they'll change. Um, but but the staling really begins to happen after about 90 days, yeah. and that's that's when you want to uh, you know think about that. And I think it's great that most breweries now do put the the canned on date, absolutely, and you can make a decision. And I I personally I always look at that. I if I ever buy a can, I always look at that. And if it's uh, over three months, I don't buy the beer. Yeah, and it's getting clear close to three months you start that's right oh, okay. and i i'll buy it if it's close to three months and i'll i just know i have to drink it you know and, yep. and it'll, it won't be as bright as it would be at the brewery but that's fine yeah um it's just a one of those things six months is too long yeah. <laughs> that's a very good answer jeff thank you uh our friend zach vestal uh who was the owner of uh portland U brew and unicorn brewing whom we interviewed uh on the pod, which I meant to add which pod it was, and it just now says pod, uh, because I failed to do that. I'm gonna say pod one, 12. 17. 17, one, right. I don't know, who knows? Who knows? We, uh, who knows? Uh, uh, he, he had to actually close the uh, brewery a while back, and he's now teaching, and he's in, he's in a good space, but that was a painful process. And at one point we had a question, or I can't remember if it was came from a question or, or where I came from, but uh, about um, uh, the the uh, uh, speculation about um, the the efforts of the owners and the, the workers to keep things going. So he 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 he. he offers this wisdom from a brewery that went through COVID and had trouble. Having closed our business for good, uh, I just got around listening to pods 183 and 184. I want to add to you and Patrick's speculation that small business businesses sometimes uh, last a few years after a struggle, COVID in this case, on the quote, superhuman efforts of owners. It's partly true in our case, but it should be pointed out that our small but fiercely loyal staff who now face unemployment despite the Herculean efforts and personal sacrifice uh, and regular customers were a huge part of allowing our business to have a 13-year run. Neighborhood support and community-minded thinking are crucial to so many of uh, to so many small businesses. So, yeah, uh, some of these breweries live on past their bit uh, between. I guess the if you look at the, if you look at them strictly sketched out, uh, they probably don't work. Um, but if people are committed to try to get them over the hump, uh, they can make them work. And then if that doesn't happen, I guess maybe they, they have to close like, like poor unicorn. Right. So I think the point he's making is not just the owners, but it's the, it's the employees and it's the customers that also are all part of the process and the effort. And that if you have loyalty among neighborhood customers, and I think it's just another way to say support your local businesses because they need it. Um, right. And particularly when you have big disruptions like COVID, and the only way that they can continue is with that continued loyalty. So, and you can. It's a good sentiment. It is a good sentiment, and as a customer, I think it's a, it's it's good to know that uh, your your business helps business. You know, it's sure, just a couple of pints on a Friday night, but uh, you know, 
it helps. It all it, it all starts with just a couple pints on a Friday night. That's yeah. how you get the revenue for the day that you can make payroll, right? It's that a whole bunch of people are getting a few pints on a Friday night. So, yeah, good good sentiment, Zach, and best wishes for your future endeavors. And I'm sad because Unicorn was in my neighborhood and it's gone. Yeah. All right, well, we should wrap this up. A few words going out. Please subscribe to us on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Zach and Bobby and Jason for the mailbag. Um, Please send your questions or comments to Jeff at BeerVanaBlog.com or on Twitter and Instagram. We're at BeerVanaPod. Jeff blogs at the BeerVana blog, and he tweets at BeerVana. And Patrick tweets at BeerNomics. Uh, yeah, and mostly we are now on the Insta, so I should probably change our final wrap-up there and emphasize Yeah, that. we're trying to focus on the Insta. Yeah, Because Insta. it's words and it's pictures. Exactly. And it's where the kids are. And it's somehow something that we're both active on, which, given that we're old farts, is the big thing, really. Yeah. That's where you actually find us doing stuff, including uh, photos from this very recording session... Uh, uh, video uh, photos of the uh, hop tour we went to. Yep. And possibly, I took a photo of, and maybe I'll post after we stop recording, uh, a photo of the corn dog at Loyal Legion, which is <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> we'll do a whole pot on that. That's right. All right. Uh, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>